Good morning, guys. Welcome to North Boulevard. Already a great day. Nice singing. Good to have you here. Three baptisms last week, three new families. And statistically, North Boulevard's planting in partnership with our uh, overseas uh, missions. We're planting about one church every four or five days. So probably planted a church this past week. Isn't that great? You know, a lot of uh, a lot of churches have given up on vacation Bible school, especially a lot of the larger churches, but. Not our Amy Sue Sane and her team. VBS starts tonight. There'll be hundreds and hundreds of people here for the next four nights tonight through Wednesday night. Come bring your kids. And we had uh, four people got married yesterday. Um, not to each other, but like two different, two different <laughs> weddings. That didn't come out right. Maddie Blankenship and Jordan Shirley, who's at West Campus. Jordan's on staff at West Campus. And um, Daniel, uh, Andrew Lamb, I, I called... We just went over this because she knew I was going to say it wrong. Andrew Lamb and Megan Starling, who works at this campus, got married yesterday. So actually, that's pretty cool. And then um, our opening prayer, Edit Udafia. I don't know if y'all know this. Edit just graduated with a PhD like two or three weeks ago. That's Edit's. Listen to this. It's a it's a PhD in hospital administration. That's I think that's Edit's. I'm not making this up. Fifth graduate degree. And, and not just that, but listen to this. I'm not making this up either. It's, I know it's bad that I have to keep telling you I'm not making stuff up. Edit is, he's the chief of his tribe in Nigeria. So he's here, but he literally is the chief of his tribe. And he runs our inner city ministry. So that's pretty well-rounded in my book um, for Edit to pull all that off. I'm really glad you're here. We're looking at Deuteronomy chapter 28, and it's actually a difficult text, but it's got a really good lesson for us. And so that's what the lesson we're going to grab out of Deuteronomy chapter 28. Here's the thing. I'm going to give you a, a, a quick reading of it. I'm not going to read every verse of it. I'm going to give you a New Living Translation summary. And then I'm going to take you to Hebrews chapter 12. So if you want to open a Bible up, go on and open it up to Hebrews 12. You might want that text sitting in front of you, actually, in your lap. I'm going to start with um, this story. See if I can get it right. Yeah. August the 21st, 1883 was a hot and humid day in Rochester, Minnesota. Uncharacteristically hot. And the residents of that, at that time, a very small town, uh, mostly just cornfields and then a, kind of a little cluster of buildings in the middle. The residents knew that it just, it, the day didn't feel right. And as the day wore on, tornadoes began to touch down in areas not too far from Rochester. By 6 o'clock p.m. on August the 21st, the sky was starting to turn black. And the thunder and the lightning were surrounding now this small town of Rochester. At 7 o'clock, the residents of Rochester would later say, the sky turned green. Those of us here in Middle Tennessee know what that means. And when the sky turned green, it dropped a tornado that, though the Fujita scale hadn't been invented yet, and actually be many years later before it would, a tornado that was clearly an EF5 tornado. It was on the ground for 10 miles, and it cut a path about one mile wide. It wiped out a third of the city of Rochester, killing 37 people and injuring 200 more. It took out about 150 houses, totally devastated, and it damaged about 200 more houses. There was no hospital in Rochester, and so the injured were taken to a local convent where Mother Mary opened up the doors and allowed the 
injured people to come in, and the doctors would come there to the convent, the few doctors who were in the town at that point, and they did their best to save the lives of many of the people who were injured on that day. And the question that Mother Mary and many of the, the nuns who actually worked at the convent, the question that they were facing over and over again that day is, a, I think that's a legitimate question, a question that the people of God or even people who aren't of God oftentimes are faced with, and that is, why? Why would God let something like this happen? Why would God let little children to be killed in a tornado? And, uh, you know, where is God when the storms are down upon us? It's actually a pretty common question, and it's, it's the right question to ask. If we take God seriously, if you take God seriously, this is a pretty reasonable question. Where is God when you hear the word cancer, or when you discover, you know, you have a heart condition that's never going to get better. Or for some who have mental health issues that are persistent, debilitating, and it just seems like year in and year out, it just never gets better. Where is God? How do we think of God in that situation? Or when you face a persistence of loneliness. And maybe it's a loneliness in the middle of a crowd. Loneliness even in marriage. Or loneliness even in a church. Where is God when we go through all of that? Well, Deuteronomy 28, in an oblique way, addresses the question. I say oblique because it's really only half of the story, Deuteronomy 28 is. It's the bad half. And we actually have to move out of the text to get the rest of that story. Here's what I want you to see. Last week, we talked about how the children of Israel on the east side of the Jordan, they're getting ready to cross the Jordan River, and they're going to take the land God has promised to them. But he says to them, when you get over there, I want half the tribe to stand on the Blessing Mountain, which is Mount Gerizim, and the other half to stand on Mount Ebal. Those on Gerizim, I want you to read all the great things that are going to happen if you will just obey me. Well, we did that last week. And now at the last part of chapter 28, he says, and here are all the bad things that are going to happen if you don't obey me. And I want you to know the bad things are really bad in that chapter. In fact, I said this last week, there are some texts, every text of Scripture should be read by the people of God, but there are some texts that, especially with children, they're not ready to hear. You don't want to read them. There's a certain maturity level that's necessary. So what I want to do is just read to you an excerpt of some of the curses that God says will happen if you fail to obey him. You ready? If you refuse to listen to the Lord your God and do not obey all the commands and decrees I'm giving you today, all these curses will come and overwhelm you. Your towns and your fields will be cursed. Your fruit baskets and breadboards will be cursed. Your children and your crops will be cursed. The offspring of your herds and flocks will be cursed. Wherever you go and whatever you do, you will be cursed. The Lord himself will send on you curses, confusion and frustration and everything you do until at last you are completely destroyed for doing evil and for abandoning me. The Lord will afflict you with diseases until none of you are left in the land you're about to enter and occupy. The skies above will be as unyielding as bronze, and the earth beneath as hard as iron. 
The Lord will cause you to be defeated by your enemies. You will attack your enemies from one direction, but you will scatter from them in seven. You will be an object of horror to all the kingdoms of the earth. Your corpses will be food for the scavenging birds and wild animals, and no one will be there to chase them away. The Lord will afflict you with the boils of Egypt, with tumors, scurvy, the itch, from which you cannot be cured. The Lord will strike you with madness, blindness, and panic. You will grope around in broad daylight like a blind person groping in the darkness, but you will not find your way. You will be oppressed and robbed continually, and no one will come to save you. You will plant much. You will harvest little, for locusts will eat your crops. You will plant vineyards and care for them, but you'll not drink the wine or eat the grapes, for worms will destroy the vines. You'll grow olive trees throughout your land, but you'll never taste the oil, for the fruit will drop before it ripens. You will have sons and daughters, but you'll lose them, for they'll be sent away into captivity if you refuse to listen to the Lord your God and to obey the commands and decrees he's given you. And the Lord will bring a distant nation against you from the end of the world, and it will swoop down upon you like a vulture. It's a nation whose language you do not understand, a fierce and heartless nation that shows no respect for the elderly and no pity for the children. And they will leave you no grain, no wine, no oil, no calves, no lambs, and you will starve to death. You get in the image? There are 53 verses of this. And he wraps it up. The Lord will scatter you among the nations from one end of the earth to the other. And there finally you'll worship the foreign gods you so loved here. What's going on in this text? Well, I want to read it to you, or I have read it to you for two reasons. The first, I want to make sure that you understand that God is not to be taken lightly. I need to say that because I do think that the pendulum swings back and forth. Some of us grew up in churches where we, we felt like everything was, you know, hellfire and brimstone. Some of us grew up in a church where we felt like, you know, everybody was going to hell except maybe one, and we're not even sure about that one. The, the cure to that kind of legalism is not just to say, well, anything goes. That's not the cure. And so in this text, we're actually taught that God's a pretty serious God, and he takes seriously what we do. There really are consequences to disobedience. So I wanted to read that to you, and I want to remind you that God who spoke those words, he's the same God that you worship. It's not a different God. The Old Testament God isn't a different God from the New Testament God. It's the same God. This is Jesus speaking. But the second reason I want to read it to you is because I want you to be aware of the fact that God is actually doing something, you won't see it at first, but he's doing something beautiful here. You don't see it until you get to chapter 30, so two chapters later, and I want to read to you just the first couple of verses. The whole chapter deals with this, but just the first few verses of chapter 30. When all these blessings and these curses I have set before you, when they come, come on you, when you take them to heart, when you and your children return, the word there means repent, when you repent, then the Lord will restore you. You could keep reading that chapter. It just keeps going. So you know what's actually happening in chapter 28 and all those curses? You know what's really happening? God is disciplining Israel. 
He's saying to Israel, when you reject me, when you do things your way, when you start worshiping fake gods, when you start to abandon the principles that I wove into the creation, terrible things are going to happen. But when you repent, I'm going to take you back. In fact, the text goes on to say, it doesn't matter. God says, it doesn't matter to me if you've been scattered to the furthest reaches of planet Earth. I'll find you and I'll bring you back. This text is actually a form of discipline that God offers to his children. And we need to be honest about discipline. Pain, well, let me say it this way first. Pleasure is a great motivator. We do a lot of things for pleasure. But pain is an even better motivator. Which is one reason why when we think discipline, we think pain. God actually allows us to suffer pain because God has an ulterior motive. He's purging us. He's disciplining us. He's raising us. Now, I'm going to look at Hebrews chapter 12 in just a moment. And when we get to Hebrews chapter 12, you're going to see that there are two responses to the situations that we face in life that are the wrong responses. The first one is to blow it off as though, you know, just bad things happen. So the Hebrew writer says, don't make light of the discipline of the Lord. Don't make light of it. And what he means is when, when something bad happens to you, don't say to yourself, well, there you go, bad things happen. Um, you need to understand that even though God may not be the source of your suffering, because you want to be careful about that, Oftentimes, the source of your suffering is someone else's evil. God's not doing it, but God can work through it. Even though something else might be the source of your suffering, God is still using it for your discipline. So don't make light of that. And the second thing the Hebrew writer says is, and don't let it crush you. Don't lose heart when God disciplines you. The reason, well, we'll see in just a moment. I do want to say one more time, this chapter, Deuteronomy 28, it was written for us. It was written for North Boulevard. We have to keep saying this because I'm aware of the fact that Deuteronomy is so strange to 21st century North American ears, and it should be. We don't live in the Bronze Age. It doesn't make sense to us in a lot of cases. But it was still written for us. Everything in this text was written for us. In fact, even in verse 45 and 6, Moses says that what's about to happen to Israel for its disobedience is a sign forever. This is a sign for us. God expects obedience from us. And Paul even puts it this way. He says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 that the bad things that happened to Israel happened to them. But then Paul says, but they were written down for us on whom he says, the end of the ages has come, one translation says. So this was all written for us. God wants us to learn something from this. And what is it that God wants us to learn? And the answer is, God wants us to learn that regardless of what happens to you, God will use it for your discipline. Let me read three verses out of Hebrews 12, make a few applications, and we're going to end. Have you for completely forgotten the Hebrew writer? So he's, the Hebrew writer is actually writing to Christians who are living through pretty serious persecution. They've been Christians for some decades now. The world's turning against them. Most likely it's Nero, could be even after Nero. Their Jewish uh, culture is now turning against them. It's, it's probably very difficult for us to appreciate the fact, but people worked in families and clans back then. So all of a sudden you've been, a, let's say, a, a, an ironsmith for generations in your family. And now because you're a Christian, they throw you out of the trade union. You can't work. Your kids are starving now. This is what's going on when the Hebrew writer addresses them. And what he says to them is, don't forget that God is disciplining you. 
Have you completely forgotten? He said this word of encouragement. By the way, don't miss this, that God's discipline ought to be for us a form of encouragement. You know why? Because God disciplines his children. It's a sign that you're a child of God. My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline. Do not lose heart when he rebukes you because the Lord disciplines those he loves and chastens everyone he accepts as a son. So endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as his children. As a general rule, we don't go into original languages in a sermon, but I do want you just to see the word discipline here is from a Greek word that you'll recognize because it's a cognate for several of our English words. It is the Greek word paideia. So it's not the word that means spanking in Greek. The word, that word actually appears in this text, but that's not the ordinary term. The term paideia here, the word from which we get the word pedagogics and uh, pediatrician, it means to raise a child. So Paul is actually saying, or the, I should say the author of the Hebrew uh, book is actually saying to us that when we go through hardship, that's God raising us as his children. That's God raising us as his children. So what, what are the hardships that he's thinking of? I want to make sure we get it clear in our heads. Again, chapter 12, verses 3, 4, and 7. One form of hardship is the opposition that comes from other people. When someone mistreats you. This is when you get passed over for a promotion. Uh, this is when somebody lies to you or somebody steals from you. This is when somebody makes a promise and they break it. This is when somebody runs off the road and, you know, takes out some of your property or even worse, T-bones you on the highway. When something bad happens, the Hebrew writer wants you to know God's going to use that as a form of discipline for you. And if you don't see it that way, then you're treating lightly what God is up to. God, remember, the only way to get your attention sometimes is through the megaphone of pain. Sometimes that's the only way to get someone's attention. I mean, that's why the whole nervous system works the way it does. The whole nervous system of the human body is designed to be a megaphone to say, stop doing that, you idiot. So, for example, there's a hot eye on a stove. When you put your hand on it, it's going to hurt really, really bad. You know why? Because your body is saying to you, this is a really bad thing you're doing. And I'm pretty sure that if you don't hurt a whole lot, you're not going to pull your hand back. So I'm going to make sure you hear the scream of your pain. That's what pain does. And so God is just reminding us here, even when someone mistreats you, God will use that as a form of discipline. When you're struggling against sin, so when you're tempted, when you personally are facing temptations, hidden sins or addictions, and when you just can't seem to beat that nagging problem that's been in your life for years. The Hebrew writer says, well, God will use that to discipline you. I'm trying to give you guys what I need, a new way of looking at our suffering. That our suffering is actually a gift God gives us to help us become like he is. Or third, enduring any kind of hardship. When, so when you face the mistreatment of others, when you're struggling yourself, or when there's just a general hardship. The Lord says, look, I'm disciplining you. I'm treating you like a child here. I'm going to help you become like I am. And the only way, let's be honest, guys, the only way we will make the kinds of changes in our lives that we know we ought to make is when we get our feet kicked out from under us. That's when we make the changes we need to make. 
It's when you go in and you're told, you know, listen, um, if you don't change your diet, you're going to cut 10 years off your life. And by the way, that doesn't change most of us. Even that won't change us. Did you know what will? When you go to the hospital and they've sliced you open and they're bypassing five times on your heart, then suddenly, guess what? All of a sudden someone says, you know, I think I'm going to cut back on the salt. It takes that kind of pain. And so what the Lord is doing in this text is he's saying to us, look, there are terrible things that are going to happen, but rest assured, I'm going to use them to make you what I want you to be. So if I were filling in these first set of blanks here, I would say the three things God uses, conflict, temptation, and hardship. Now I want you to see something else. When you feel that you're being disciplined by God, being raised by God, remind yourself that he's only doing it through love. God only does it for love. This is a real important, um, that's a real important truth. I have to tell you that um, I wrestle with this in in an odd way. When I feel as though God is punishing me, here's the odd thing about me. I've always felt that I don't get punished as much as I deserve. Like I know myself. So um, I've often thought, you know, man, I, I thank God I don't get justice because I don't deserve, it'd be worse than, a lot worse than what I am. But I do usually think that when bad things are happening to me, I think, okay, I deserve that. That's, you know, God's mad at me. If nothing else, the way I treated my mother, you know, God's punishing me for being a smart mouth to my mother um, for years. But I do want to say, maybe in my case it is, but remind yourself, God's not like an earthly father. An earthly father will actually punish a child just because they're annoying them. You know, you never annoy God. God never slaps you around because you annoyed him. And sometimes an earthly father might actually punish a child disproportionately. God never does that. I had to learn when we had kids, don't punish a child when you're angry because you'll mess it up. So we would count to 10 sometimes or maybe 100 or something like that, but it wasn't really for the kids. Really wasn't for the kids anyways, just for one of them. But I had to count to 100 because I had to cool off. Otherwise, I would discipline my child with the wrong motive. And God never disciplines me because he's mad at me. That's worth remembering if you're a Christian. If you're a Christian, God never disciplines you because he's mad at you. He's only disciplining you because he has a vision for you that's even better than where you are today. So the Lord disciplines those he loves, he says. And let me put it this way. 1 Thessalonians 5 and verse 9 guarantees us you have not been destined for the wrath of God. Listen, Christian, listen to me a second. You've got no reason to fear God. Now that you're a Christian, you have no reason to fear God. You're now the child of the loving Father of the universe. Anything that happens to you, it's going to be from God's love and not his wrath. You were not appointed for wrath. All that's gone. Jesus took the wrath of God on his shoulders so that you wouldn't have to. You're not going to face an angry God. He's the one who's already dealt with it. So anytime we feel as though we're suffering, maybe God's mad at me. This is because I did that and so forth. Just remind yourself, no, the discipline you're receiving, it's just coming from a God who loves you. He says, I'm going to make you even better than you thought. But we got to go through pain sometimes to get there. God disciplines us out of love. And let me say this also. 
He compares human parents with the Lord. And he says that the discipline that God gives us is good discipline. So I'm going to break it down, just make three quick points about what good discipline looks like. God's discipline is appropriate. That is, it fits my circumstances perfectly. So I've got temptations in my life. You've got temptations. What might tempt me would never tempt some of you. And what might tempt some of you would never tempt me. God decides which one is just perfect for me. That's what I mean. God knows what's appropriate temptation. He knows how to shake my world in order to get me to become the David he wants me to be. God's discipline is also proportional. That is, God doesn't give me more discipline than I can handle, but he doesn't give me less either. If, if my father was a good father, and he was, by the way, and the Hebrew writer says, if good fathers know how to do some discipline, imagine what God can do. God knows exactly what he's doing. So whatever you're facing, remind yourself, God is giving me proportionally what I need. I need this. I needed to be mistreated. You need to tell yourself that. It's a form of God's discipline. That doesn't excuse the person who mistreated you. They're going to have to answer to God. But sometimes we just need to say, you know, I needed that. I needed that wake-up call in my life. I was just not thinking rightly, and I needed that. God's discipline of us, it is appropriate, it's proportional, and it's timely. It comes when we need it. The only question is, do you recognize it? Do you recognize it when he's disciplining you? That's like a really big question for us because his discipline is exactly what we need. If you think about how God does his discipline, sometimes God's discipline hedges us in. Sometimes God's discipline puts a fire in our seat. Sometimes God's discipline humbles us. Sometimes God's discipline teaches us okay, I need to depend on him more. Sometimes God's discipline drives us to a person we really needed to be driven to anyway. Sometimes God's discipline drives us away from somebody that we really needed to be away from. God knows what he's doing in your life. I just wonder if you believe that. I really, I want to pause a second. I have to tell you, when I was working on this lesson, all I could think of was, um, I tend to be an idea man. Like, I love ideas, and I... I, I I've always got ideas bouncing around to, to the point sometimes that I can forget even where I am. And I was thinking, oh, how can I say this where it's more than just an idea, where you really feel it? I'm not sure I've done that yet. So I'm just going to ask you, like, do you really believe that the stuff that's happening in your life can be used by God for your discipline? I hope you do. If you don't, it's because the sermon just never really got off the ground. It's true. I think about where you are in life. Isn't this just what God needed to do to get your attention? Maybe you did need to be humbled. Maybe you needed to be able to, maybe you needed somebody to mistreat you so that you could stop and say, you know, I haven't been so good to them either. Maybe you needed that. Maybe you actually needed your feet kicked out from under you so that you could on your knees say, man, without God, where would I be? Do you know that? Because really that's the way Christians look at our suffering. And if we don't have that, we're living a spiritually impoverished life. I mean, we really get that. We get that. It's offered to us. 
to understand that God's discipline is just what I need. I want you to see something else, and I'll do this fairly quickly. The text addresses individual Christians and the group of children, the group of Christians. So sometimes it's singular you and sometimes it's plural you. And the reason the text does this is because God actually practices corporate discipline. Just a quick word about that. This, does, this is not corporal punishment. This is corporate. Corporal means bodily. He does that too. But what I want you to see is that sometimes God's discipline is on a whole group of people. God might be disciplining an entire church. He might be disciplining an entire people group. He might be disciplining a, a nation. God does things like that. And sometimes it's really helpful to remember that the discipline God gives me might actually be for your sake, not always for my sake. But sometimes God might be disciplining me because he has something he needs you to get, and he's getting to you through me. That's actually really helpful to think about because it reminds me that the world's a whole lot bigger than me. You know, the world's a lot bigger than what I want or what I need or what I think should be given to me, that God is actually using me as a pawn in someone else's holiness. Well, I'm going to wrap it up because it is holiness that God wants to make in our lives. This is a really important point, guys. The Hebrew writer says uh, that our parents disciplined us for a little while as they saw it best, but God disciplines us for our good in order that what? What is the objective of God's discipline? This is super important. What is the reason that God disciplines us in this text? There is only one reason, so that we can be holy. And he says just a few verses later, without holiness, you will not see God. This is really important because I'm going to say this. If you're measuring your life by how much pleasure you get, God's discipline will never make sense to you because it's not pleasant. If your life is measured by how happy you are, I'm not against happiness. I just want you to know it's just not the right measurement. If your measurement is I want to be happy, then when God disciplines you, you're going to be unhappy and you're going to say, well, I, just don't, I don't know what God's up to. But imagine this. Imagine if the purpose of God's discipline is to make you holy. I mean, if you keep that in the forefront of your thinking, God is disciplining me because he wants me to be holy. All of a sudden, God's discipline makes sense because all God is really doing is with a hammer and a chisel, he's knocking everything that's unholy off your life so that at some point, all the unholiness is gone and now you're holy like God is holy, which means now you see God. The purpose of his discipline is to make us holy. Let me give you three very short illustrations. These are composite illustrations, which means that each point of the illustration is true, but there's not any one person. First story. We had a, a brother here whose wife died rather suddenly. They'd been married for 50 years. Wife died rather suddenly. And um, Obviously really painful. Kids have been raised. A great guy, a great family. About a year and a half after his wife died, I was preaching a sermon on learning contentment, which is a little ironic for me to be preaching that sermon since I'm the most restless human in the world, I think. But after I preached the sermon, he came up to me and he said, I always believed what you said in the sermon. But he said, it wasn't until my wife died that I actually learned that contentment is only found in trusting God. He said, I don't have a choice anymore. Now it's got to be me and God. And he says, I'm not glad my wife died. 
And I know I'll see her again at the resurrection, which, by the way, he will. But he said, I am glad now that I finally know what it means to be content in the Lord. See, that's a guy who's claiming the discipline that God was offering him. Here's another one. A young man was painfully shy, and because he was painfully shy, he didn't hang around with the kids a whole lot. Didn't have any dates. By the time he reached his younger 20s, he still hadn't had any dates in his life. And he began to feel like something was wrong with him. He watched everybody else have a pretty happy life, but not him. And he honestly did think, okay, I guess there's just something wrong with me. By the way, you should notice that the theme of so much of these stories is the theme of loneliness. It's probably the greatest scourge any of us faces. And then one day, out of the clear blue, he met the perfect girl. And as, as though God just dropped them in the same pool together, next thing you know, they're married. And you know what his take on that is? I am so thankful that God waited until the perfect girl came because otherwise I well could have ended up with the wrong girl. Now, that's someone who understands the discipline of God. Painful while it's being done, but rewarding when God achieves his ultimate purpose. And then one more. A young man who was raised in an abusive home, beaten, mistreated, unloved, and he treated his emptiness with pornography, sex, drugs, alcohol, you name it. Multiple addictions filled with rage. When the Lord got hold of him and he went through several 12-step programs and through the course of all of it, he learned to give everything over to Jesus. As a result of this, he became a sponsor for others who were going through similar addictions. Today, he's probably delivered more than a hundred other men from their addictions. And here's what he would tell you. I'm not glad I went through what I went through. But I wouldn't trade it for the world. Because now I see that God was shaping me to save these other guys. What I'm trying to say to you is this. The hardships you face, the mistreatment you face, your own temptations. God is using those to discipline you if you will let him. Don't blow it off. And don't let it crush you. Because that's what God actually does. Look for what God is up to when he disciplines us. Some of you have family or friends who have been to the Mayo Clinic. Many people say of the Mayo Clinic that it is the greatest hospital in the world. I, I'm not capable of making that judgment, but it's, it's been said quite often. Mayo Clinic employs 63,000 people, if you can imagine that. They have more than 3,200 medical doctors on staff. And by the way, typically at Mayo Clinic, the doctors work for the hospital. They get a paycheck. So very different from what's typically done where doctors work in partnerships or in solo. They actually are employees of Mayo Clinic, which means that they can collaborate just a little bit more, which is one reason why people think of it as a very special place. Every single year, Mayo Clinic has somewhere in the vicinity of 1.2 million Patients go through its doors. On any given day, they will have 14,000 patients at Mayo Clinic. They will have 300 surgeries on any given day, 5,000 procedures, 230 radiologists on staff who can turn around a test in about 
90 minutes. Many of you will know someone who was told by hospitalists somewhere, this is all we can do. Only to call the Mayo Clinic who will say to them something along the lines of, well, come down and let's see if we can help you. You know what's nuts about that? The Mayo Clinic was started in 1883 in Rochester, Minnesota. When William Mayo, the doctor, who was taking care of the patients at that convent, met with Sister Mary, the mother of the convent, who said to Dr. Mayo, I had a dream that God wanted us to start a world-class hospital in response to this tornado. And Dr. Mayo said, well, it'll cost too much. And Sister Mary said, well, I'll raise the money if you'll lead the hospital. And she went out, she and the sisters, and raised about $60,000, which was in 1883, in today's dollars, was astronomical. And they opened the hospital, which is celebrated now 150 years, still building on faith and still building on hope, all from a tornado. So here's the deal. Nobody can say how many thousands of people have been saved by the Mayo Clinic, by the healthcare workers there. But we do know that if it hadn't been for a tornado in 1883, not a single person would have been saved at the Mayo Clinic. That God found a way to take a tornado, discipline a whole town, and turn it into a world-class healthcare center where thousands are saved every year. And he could do the same in your life. That's what he's up to. You wonder why you're going through what you're going through? I don't know. God doesn't tell us why, but he does tell us what he's going to do with it. He's going to take it and he's going to use it to make you holy. And when you're holy, you will see God. So why don't we stand up and let's sing to this holy God in gratitude that he loves us enough to discipline us.